Hello, everyone. Please find a seat. Welcome to Catechesis. Can you hear me if I stand like this? Hear me? Okay. I, my first note is to introduce myself. I am Hannah. I go to All Souls. Um, I work at Wheaton College. Um, other things to know about me, I'm the girl who is usually either knitting and or crying during church. So if people are like, what did I miss? Well, you know that girl, she knits and she cries. That's me. So um, uh, for those of you who are listening to the podcast version someday, maybe my one fan, Maddie Reno, from our house group in DC, um, there is a PowerPoint that this only makes sense with, so I'm happy to email it out to people afterwards. Um, so today's lesson, it is still Epiphany. Yeah. We're like the cool Christians that have Epiphany till like Lent. So nothing ordinary about us. Um, so today's lesson, we're going to talk, um, I, I structured it um, somewhat, you heard the song at the beginning, the best version of uh, We Three Kings Ever is done by the Beach Boys in the Beach Boys Christmas album that was playing while we were getting our coffee. So as I was thinking through the structure that I had already chosen for today's lecture, um, it somewhat fit with a little rearranging with the refrain that we always sing. Um, so we're going to start by talking a very little bit about Epiphany, which I'm going to call Star of Wonder. It's the sense of wonder that we experience during Epiphany. But then uh, we're going to talk about especially the Magi or the wise men, the way the legend has kind of come down to us. And that's where I did a little rearranging. Westward leading is kind of the header there. Um, and in this journey, we have kind of two steps. Um, the Magi or the wise men as symbols for the Christian imagination. So we'll talk about perhaps the earlier Christian imagination, the idea of um, the star illuminating our darkness or God or Christ illuminating our darkness. But then we'll think about the three kings and the royal beauty of the star that we um, have tended to follow for past, perhaps the past um, thousand years or so as Christians. And then we'll sort of return to our journey and to the idea that we're still proceeding forward. And finally, perhaps end with a prayer um, that the Lord would continue to guide us. So let's just jump in um, right from the get-go. Um, a very little bit about Epiphany, what you probably know marks the 13th day after Christmas. Um, in the Middle Ages, Epiphany came to be known as the Feast of the Three Holy Kings, and we'll get to that later. Um, you know that the main texts that we read on actual Epiphany Sunday are here, and especially um, Matthew is what is driving the, what we'll be talking about today, the story of the visit of the wise men. Um, yeah, so we, we see since about the late 4th century um, that Christians have been celebrating Epiphany in some, some way or another, especially in the West. Um, our, our friends in the East tend to celebrate um, the baptism of Jesus on January 6th, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so um, that's great, too. We talk about that, too. Um, so in Church of England, it... Um, tends to extend till Candlemas, the Epiphany season for us, 
um, extends a little bit longer. So um, a few ways that we commemorate Epiphany. Uh, of course, Twelfth Night celebrations. Um, this is, uh, gosh, Jordan's, I think. The king, the king drinks or something. Um, so we think of Twelfth Night as a bit of a party. Um, but as Christians, we, we are more civilized than that today. We, we, um, we do things like our um, Epiphany play, which if you didn't attend it this year, it's mostly for children. Tom and I realized when we got here, we were like, we're the only people without kids. But it was great. I would recommend, recommend attending our um, Three Kings uh, evening. Um, different celebrations of Epiphany do surround the story of the wise men. It's this idea of, um, you know, often the king cake, for example, or they used to use cards as well. Um, you'd find the little king, or it was usually a bean with a face painted on it, maybe, um, in your slice of cake, and you were king of the party for the evening. Um, sometimes used a bit more for charitable ends, or sometimes a bit of a tension in the Middle Ages um, between um, perhaps the way the laity would celebrate it and elect their own kings, and the way that the clergy wanted to present um, the story of the wise men, but um, there's always that tension, I think. So, plays. Um, another, another way that people celebrate, maybe they'll move the wise men a bit closer to the nativity scene as a way of kind of journeying with um, the magi. Perhaps you'll light candles or a star. We have our star lit today, which is great. Um, and of course, we chalk the door. What do we put on the door? Raise your hand if you know, and if you're not Matt. Because <laughs> he already tweeted about it. He already know. What do we chalk on the door? Kathy? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so you do 20 and then a cross, and then C, um, I think it's C, M, B, then plus, then the year again. So it kind of is kind of chiastic that way. And it either stands for Christ bless our home or Christus Mancianum Benicat or Caspar um, Melchior uh, Balthasar. Either one or both. It's fun. Um, do you uh, do you have fun celebrations? Anyone? Epiphany things that you do? Mm-hmm. Uh huh. I know, that's a choking hazard, 101. Don't put hard things in cake. <laughs> okay. Fun. Fun. Anyone else have a, a different sort of epiphany? Celebration. At my house for Epiphany, we put up all sorts of bright, colorful things. Okay. About the light for the nation and the brightness and all 
love that. Wonderful. I love that. So they bring color into their home during the bleak midwinter, right? That's great. Anything else? Joy? I love that. love that. So the theme that we see is this idea of celebration and of bringing light and color into our lives. Um, often what we um, think what we think of with Epiphany is that illumination, that idea that we are led by the light of Christ and now we're led out into the world. So we tend to celebrate in in those ways. Another fun charitable thing that you could do, I um I found in my in my research a story about um, Louis II, the good Duke of Bourbon. Yes, I said Bourbon in church. He uses the Epiphany party to select the poorest boy in the city and crowned him a king for the evening. Then they begged for the king and gave money to the boy's family to use for his education. Um, and after the mid-16th century, and I think we still see this today, bedraggled male college students begging door-to-door. <laughs> Maybe that's not, okay. Um, so uh, in my research, just we're, we're going to head now um, westward leading is what I've called this, the Magi journey or the journey of the wise men. Um, and these two images here will make sense soon, but um, I want to think about the wise men as symbols for the Christian imagination in the earlier, um, perhaps like the first millennium of the church. And I thought a great way to think about it and to typify the way that the wise men were used to kind of fuel the Christian imagination in this period is this quote from Gregory the Great. Um, his interpretation and many interpretations in the earlier periods of the church were that there is deep spiritual meaning to be gleaned and applied to the Christian life um, as a way of journeying a different way than we had been before. So the return of the Magi by another way home suggests a spiritual interpretation as they were advised to take another way. So are we. And I should mention here, um, for the bulk of what I did, we always tell each other what we read to prepare. I read um, a work by Richard Trexler, perhaps, perhaps the most comprehensive work on the visual, like the reception history of the wise men. Um, he 
fun story, I went to the university where he taught until he passed away. Um, he, he, his work was very comprehensive, really great, and also a recent exhibition in Cologne, and you'll understand why I was in Cologne soon if you don't already, um, for a lot of my images. That was a great source, a great source for me. Um, so, if we think about Gregory, um, his quote, he's passionate about spreading the message of Christ um, and the view of wise men, um, their journey not being like the one that brought them to Christ. So Gregory, of course, we think of him sending the first like major mission out. Um, we have him to thank for the, our church today in some ways, but... Um, uh, very early on, the idea of the wise men on their journey, we see them, if we want to think like visual markers, um, a very different um, way than perhaps the Renaissance images we're used to where they're all um, circling around the nativity. They're instead processing toward Mary and the Christ child. So this is from maybe like the later fourth century. This is the tombstone of Severa, perhaps a child. It's a pretty small tombstone. Um, and this is typical of early Christian, either catacomb or tombstone imagery, burial imagery, featuring images among other things of the Magi. Other popular subjects are, of course, the Good Shepherd. We also see, and this is um, going to come up in just a moment, um, a juxtaposition with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three wise men of the Old Testament who were martyred, but they survived. Um, so, Another good example, I didn't bring you an image, is the catacomb of St. Priscilla. Um, above ground, um, and I think this is actually above ground, uh, we see, so here, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the flames but not devoured by them on one side. Um, and here, um, the three wise men on the other side processing toward Mary and the Christ child. This is uh, a small reliquary casket from the early 5th century, um, probably from northern Italy. Um, Christians found the comparison between these two stories important in their context. Um, they're welcomed to into the fold from the outside, perhaps. Um, we always think somewhat problematically of the apologists and their emphasis on Christ being for being for everyone, it's not just about um, it's not just about the law or about being Jewish, perhaps. But um, th these Christians, in their imagination, are thinking they're welcomed in. They're worshiping a king that was not given to them, but gave himself to them and chose them and led them to them, led them to him. He protected them from perhaps rebellion at different times against different social um, uh, standards, um, just as he protected. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And um, I hadn't really thought of that parallel before about um, the three, you know, it's not alluded to in, in Matthew. You see a lot of images, for example, here, this is Balaam pointing to the star. Um, often you'll, you will see that happening where there's like this random guy 
pointing at a star, he's a little bit older. Sometimes that's interpreted as Balaam. They think that, I think it's Numbers 24, one of Balaam's visions, he talks about a star appearing. And early Christian exegesis is going to say, I mean, as early as origin, is Balaam was talking about the star that led these guys from the east to the west. Um, what else there? Um, so the wise men processing sometimes with the dead in their group at the end of their entourage, associating the dead with their gift giving. So we think about um, our association with the wise men as we have something to bring to Christ. And we'll talk about what that is or what that's understood to be soon. Um, uh, just as a side note, there are also some interesting juxtapositions of triumphal arches celebrating the emperor and celebrating the Christ child, and they will feature the Magi. So um, in Rome, the large Marian Basilica there, for example, has one of those images. Um, so um, to the gifts now and how they're perhaps brought into the Christian life. Um, as early as um, Irenaeus in the second century, we have what we still have today, the idea of the gold symbolizing Jesus's kingship, that they recognize that Christ is king, the myrrh is foreshadowing his death, and frankincense symbolizes his deity. So again, the song, Star of Wonder, Star of Night, that um, we Three Kings song borrows on that tradition in the way that um, each of the kings tells the story of this is what my gift symbolizes. Other, other writings, uh, the Opus Imperfectum or the Incomplete Work on Matthew, um, it was very influential for people like Aquinas, um, it's from the 5th century, saw gold as a sacrifice for our belong of our belongings, frankincense, like the soothing speech of the Holy Spirit. And finally, myrrh, showing that they understood that life was but a human sepulcher. And again, returning to Gregory the Great, um, Christian living dis and disciplines, the Christian disciplines are often um, kind of brought in as a comparison here. Uh, gold being wisdom, frankincense standing for Christian prayer, excuse me, and myrrh standing for self-mortification the preservation of our bodies for Christ. Um, later interpretations we will see um, include the possibility that the Magi were testing Jesus to see if he was either a priest with the incense. If he takes the incense, he's a priest. If he takes the gold, he's a king. If he is a doctor, he'll take the myrrh. But since he took all three, that meant that he was something entirely different. But something about that doctor, um, just as a side note on the, on the doctor um, portion of it, we see in um, the Byzantine era, um, and here I'm treading in dangerous waters in front of the Byzantinists, but a lot of um, um, garments of this period, and we'll actually see a very famous one that you've looked at and maybe never noticed before, um, featuring the three kings as a, as a talisman, either against illness or protection, as a, something to protect you on your journey. So the multifaceted ways that people related to the wise men, we've already seen that their gifts 
are somehow resonating with the disciplines that we're supposed to be expressing in our own Christian life, that they're on a journey one by one, no, none taller than the other, none really distinct, no one's really distinguished. They all have, I mean, you can always find them in these earlier works because um, they have these Phrygian bonnets on that have the little curly top and they're always leaning forward with their plates or their bowls or their dishes, whatever they are, presenting their gifts, but they're still on their way. And I think this is really important, this idea of motion versus arrival. Um, and I want to talk about that a little bit later. Um, so here's the earliest I could find image-wise, and it's probably the most famous of the names appearing. Um, so this is the 6th century um, Arian Basilica in Ravenna. Um, so the Magi, again, they're processing towards marrying the Christ child. They're holding their gifts. They've got the, their hats on. But we start to see some differences. We see their names, Balthazar, Melchior, and Caspar. I know it's really tiny. Um, and also a distinguishing of their features. Um, so while the, in the fifth century the names are coined, um, they're not really in common use for a long time, so this is kind of anomalous. Um, one of the first descriptions of them, like of these particular wise men as individuals, comes from pseudo-bead, not the real bead, not the real venerable. Um, uh, Melchior is old and bearded. He's usually like leading. Caspar is beardless and young. So these are kind of not in the same order. So this is Melchior. So Melchior's name is in the middle, but this would typically be seen as Melchior, and this would be typically Caspar. And Balthazar um, is usually either has a dark beard or later we'll see him um, rep represented as a black man. Um, so a lot of the time we'll see them as like old, middle-aged, young. For those who were at the Epiphany play, that's like a major, a major theme, the idea that youth is very proud and stands aloof. And we see that in a lot of the imagery later on. Youth feels strong and that we can still do it. And middle age is starting to somewhat bend over towards a recognition of their weakness and the humility of old age bowing before the Christ child. So we'll see that in some of the later imagery. Um, all right, so tea down. Okay. Other fun things. Uh, I don't know if they were ever designated as saints, at least not that not that I could see it definitely not at this period maybe much later on but these that's kind of interesting with the SCS there um, in the 17th century much later on Jacques Lapierre puts forward the theory that the Magi are Melchizedek Enoch and Elijah the three men who never died um, and that is one instance among many that we start to see the wise men um, being turned into very specific characters from very specific places and having very extensive narratives. So it still goes on into the modern era all the way up to Lapierre, but um, 
Other theories much earlier included seeing them as the different sons of Noah dispersed. Um, this became especially popular. Can anyone wager a guess? No? Age of discovery, aka colonization. So, um, I don't know why I put this here, but I'll just mention Luther. Um, what do you think he thought about the three kings or the three wise men? A needless accretion. <laughs> yes, yes. But um, like the book of James, it still doesn't fall out of Protestant or Catholic liturgies. Calvin also disputed the kingship. I mean, that's pretty common, Catholic and Protestant. Um, when they do turn to kings, so that's something to remember. I. I love just the different ways they're appropriated through time just are so resonant with the kind of contemporary imagination. So of course the humanists and the reformers want to see them. I mean, magicians is not great because magic is bad. Don't read Harry Potter. Um, and uh, uh, you know, if they're, if they're kings, okay, what, what does that do for me? But if they're wise, if they're philosophers or scientists, now that's quite nice for me because I want to spend my day reading philosophy. So, um, so I, you remember me mentioning earlier that um, garments often featured images of the Magi, and this was like my crazy moment. Everyone knows who this is. This is Theodora in um, San Vitale in Ravenna. Look who it is. It's the three magi, it's the three wise men. Maybe everyone knew this but me, but I didn't, and I was quite excited. So what's really, really interesting here is we start to see, okay, it's 6th century, and of course this is in the East, and we're going to abandon the East, as all good Western Christians did at some point. <laughs> I'm just kidding, I love you all. Um, uh, uh, so uh, we are going to just move into the West for sure, but I love... Um, here, first of all, we think of the protection, we think of their um, protection for pilgrims and the healing, but also the association here. The fold here, I don't think, is accidental. It's covering the top half of the body of the first of the wise men in the procession. And look who completes the motion, Theodora. And of course, Justinian is also holding his gift as well. And they're, they're flanking kind of beneath the resurrected Christ in the chapel. But so this idea here that the kings continue to bring gifts to the Christ child um, becomes a popular a popular theme um, in the Middle Ages and in the medieval time in medieval era. So um, now, let's see. Oh, I just wanted to sneak ahead um, for those of you who really like the star. I want to apologize. I didn't. Oh, what's up? No, but that rather that contemporary kings and queens who are properly pious um, continue that motion in their contemporary time. Yeah, so they, they went once. The wise men, a.k.a. eventually the kings, did that in their day. And if I'm a wise ruler now, mm -hmm. that's what I'll do. Yeah, okay, so the, so the 
here? Yeah, so these are um, the three wise men on Theodora's um, cloak here, but Theodora herself um, is completing that motion. Yeah. Um, not so much. It's just the fold is covering the guy's body, so we don't see him doing it, so she's doing it. So to me, um, that's a visual uh, way of saying, I am like this person. It's kind of covering up that one person's figure and then kind of doing the motion for them. It's just a visual way of saying a lot without using words. Yeah, it's really hard to see. I'm sorry. I think I had it a little bit bigger here. Yeah? Yeah, one, two, three, the wise men with their bonnets, with their bowls, processing. Again, they're still on the journey, though. So we're kind of here in between um, where they're on a journey, but now they're starting to be associated with royalty. They're not royal yet. Um, and again, I did not do a ton on stars, so just quickly. Um, here is a van der Weyden triptych. And just to give you an example of the different ways that the star could be portrayed, it could be a human form, it could be a cross, it could be letters. From as early as origin, again, uh, people thought Balaam prophesied, prophesied it with numbers. And then, of course, you want to think a little bit about um, Constantine and the symbols that um, Constantine um, conquered under. You at first you see, what is it, Iota and Chi, which is Jesus Christ, and then after Constantine, you start to see Chi Rho, which is, of course, the sign under which Constantine conquered. So that's just a little side note. We'll keep moving on. I did not bring a clock. I'm so sorry. Okay, so moving on quickly, how do we move from Magi to Kings? The three kings and uh, what I called the expanding Christian imagination. And um, this quote here is from John of Hildesheim. And excuse me, I'm blanking on his dates, but 14th century. Uh, yeah, 14th century, excuse me. So um, he starts to kind of codify some of the different loose ends of the Magi tradition into this idea that there are three kings from three distinct Indias. Um, they were all kings, and the legend is pretty interesting. I almost said something different. Um, it's, pretty, it's pretty interesting. It's really wild. I mean, Hester John shows up. St. Thomas shows up. Of course, Helen, the mother of Constantine, finds the three kings and brings them to now where we'll end up. Um, so how do we get from Magi to kings? And this is the earliest image I could find of the Magi turning to kings. This is a 10th century manuscript here. Um, who knows what cathedral this is? Great, everyone answered it, community, that's great. Okay, so this Cologne Cathedral, um, and this is the largest reliquary shrine in Europe. The Shrine of the Three Kings. Um, the Magi were installed in Cologne. So, of course, later, this is 1164 when they're actually moved here, but then the kind of story um, of John of Hildesheim, the story of the Three Kings, occurs a little bit later when pilgrimage becomes very popular. Um, it's believed that Helen found 
found them or somehow retrieved them, including from those wickedness historians, and brought them to Milan. And then um, from Milan, Frederick um, Barbarossa gives them to his buddy, the archbishop, in um, in Cologne, and that's where they lived. They didn't live in the cathedral because that w did not exist when they came, but when this was finally f built, they moved to Cologne, where we have them today. Um, and this shrine, what do you want to know about it? I don't know, nothing. Okay, so... This is where we start to see in medieval and early, late, like later medieval and early modern scenes, kings sometimes or rulers being in the train of kings as well. So kings coming to worship at the feet of Mary and Christ. This is Otto when the shrine was completed. This practice declines after the 16th century. Um, and just as a side note, I think this is a very interesting thing to ponder, and I don't I don't quite know the connections I want to make yet. Perhaps someone has an answer for me. Um, in 1948, it was the 17th, 700th anniversary of the first stone of Cologne Cathedral being laid. Um, and of course, Cologne was in ruins besides the cathedral. Um, but they chose to have a celebration of the return of the shrine. And I just think it's very, it's very moving and very interesting considering the accumulation of meaning between the initial visit of the wise men to 1948, um, that kind of somber clinging to the idea that we have the kings. Um, this is just a picture of the Hildesheim manuscript. And of course, here what I want to imagine is thinking about a bit about the domestication. Yes? There's probably plenty, but I didn't look into them. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, so I, d I don't want to um, cut ourselves short because there's something more to think about. Um, the idea of the domestication we can see um, here in this Bruegel in this Bruegel image. This is a snowy scene, and here come the wise men to worship. But then we also see exoticization exoticization, if it's not a word, it is now, um, this idea of a black king um, coming to them. And this image becomes incredibly popular and becomes kind of the way to represent Balthazar um, following the um, introduction of the slave trade into Europe. Um, and so here, of course, this is Durer. You can see... Um, the Three Kings, and this is just, I gave a lot of details. You see Melchior, Caspar, Balthazar presenting their gifts. Balthazar is often depicted aloof and in the back, or either, either that or vain or distracted. So I think um, as you look at these images, it's another way to understand that the story of the Three Kings by now is being used to describe a very particular racial imagination as well. Um, and that moves very quickly. <laughs> to the age of, again, discovery, when I was mentioning that the kings were kind of co-opted into this idea that they're the missing sons, of, you know, missing sons of Noah, etc. Columbus, and this is something I didn't know either, he thought he was looking 
for the kings. He thought he was looking for their lands, and it's in his writings. So um, when he discovers them and others, um, when, when they get to the Americas, we see two very interesting um, images here. Um, and just, again, quickly kind of moving on. This is on the left, Grau Vasco. This is an adoration scene from 1501. This is displayed in Portugal, but you see here the Native American man now representing the king. And then here, of course, again in, this is late, I think this is 17th century, Deo de la Puente. And this is actually displayed in the churches there in the Americas. But um, one thing that I loved is that mestizo authors of the time co-opted the story for themselves. And it was used as a way of rebelling against the Spaniards and against um, those who were colonizing them. They were like, no, if the kings were kings and they came to worship, then A, we already had Christianity before you guys showed up and were terrible to us. And B, we can rise up and crown our kings again. So you have these epiphany rebellions happening, for example, in 1607 and 1667. I just found that fascinating. So moving on quickly, um, I just want to jump to our journey. Um, and think a little bit um, that, of that idea that we're still proceeding. Um, I have a hunch, uh, but I think today's lectionary readings were very great, that I do not understand the generosity that Epiphany symbolizes. And I think if there is one thing I want to drive home is that the imagery that we see begins with humble men on a journey bearing gifts and it ends with either very wealthy and opulent kings before the Christ child, or even perhaps more problematically, images of people of other races who have to bow down before the white Jesus, really, who is owned and kept, kept in the hands of the church. Um, and it becomes this stable, image that people aren't journeying anymore. They've arrived. And I think that Mary's talk last week set us up perfectly for this idea that um, you remember her different arcs that she showed us. Um, that Advent is a, is a season of waiting, and it's a very stationary sort of season. We kind of are sit, sitting and feeling heavy. But Epiphany is a time of going out. It's a journeying time. And it's not just sitting in the light of the star for ourselves, but it is a time to contemplate the ways that we have be, been stationary, either as Christians or in the way that we live our social, economic, and political lives. Um, and I don't think that I am just getting on the social justice train here because it's in our lectionary. It was in the word today in Isaiah and in other places. And I think that many of the sermons we've heard through Epiphany have been incredibly compelling, reminding us that it's time to go and that the gospel is for someone else. It's not always our story. And um, this is something that I am learning and I'm not learning it perfectly, but it's something that's 
becoming increasingly important to me in the choices that I make. I don't want to be a king, and I don't want to just tell the story, and I like T.S. Eliot a lot, so don't get me wrong, but this idea, again, that I can always just tell the story of someone else. These, remember, are the first Christians, perhaps, that were not on the inside. They were on the outside. And they have a lot to teach us, even though, actually, Scripture barely says anything about them. Um, there is a story that is not ours, and it's not complete, and we need to care for it, and we need to be very cautious about how we tell it. So as we think about our journey, and I'm not going to tell you who to vote for or what to do or what to buy, but um, time to be done, Brad? Yeah. So it is, it's an important year, and important decisions are coming up for a lot of us. And I hope that the Lord will use Epiphany to help me with my imagination and the way that I imagine others and imagine my place in the story and help me to be humble enough not to tell someone else's. And I, perhaps this will help us a little bit with our discourse, but I thought we would just end like we began today with this idea of being guided to the perfect light of Christ again. Our journey is not towards the right politician being in power or towards having all of the right answers or coming out on top or any of that. It's to lead us to Christ. And I loved how Mary um, today was just emphasizing the calmness and the stillness of recognizing the presence of the Lord. So I'm just going to skip through these, but we want to be on a journey. We want to follow the wise men to submit, surrender, name God's presence, and align ourselves. So I thought we would end with this prayer, if you will join with me. This is our collect of the day. Almighty God, who alone can bring order to the unruly wills and passions of sinful humanity, give your people grace so to love what you command and to desire what you promise, that among the many changes of this world, our hearts may surely there be fixed where true joys are to be found. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Thanks, everyone.